This week, Britain and the United States warn Syria over chemical weapons. Drone warfare, is it the future? And looking after the wounded, is the NHS able to cope? As we've got further away from the military, the quality of the care has deteriorated. David Cameron and President Obama have spoken on the phone about the situation in Syria and say it would be completely unacceptable if Syria thought about using chemical weapons. This week, President Obama warned Syria that there would be enormous consequences if it used or moved its chemical weapons. He said he had not ordered any military intervention in Syria at this point before adding that contingency plans had been formulated. So what are those contingency plans? With us, as usual, is BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee and also to discuss Syria and the wider issues in the Middle East, Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies at Bradford University. Firstly, Paul, welcome to the show and what did you make of President Obama's and Downing Street's comments this week? It's interesting that Down- Downing Street should come in on this as well because uh, Britain has close, close links with what's going on. It has the big base in Cyprus just across the eastern Mediterranean. There is a real concern on the American side that you now have a very bitter civil war with no clear winner coming out and the possibility that the regime might collapse into chaos. And meanwhile, Syria does have a, a chemical weapons arsenal. It's developed it over 20 years, very much for use as a deterrent against the Israelis, who, of course, have very powerful nuclear forces. And I think the Syrians learned bitterly back in the 1980s over Lebanon that the Israelis were so far ahead in conventional tactics and forces that they had to have some sort of deterrent and they chose to take the chemical weapons route. So the weapons are there. They're not geared for internal use, but they exist and they're causing concern, particularly in Washington. Bearing, Bearing that in mind then, what are these contingency plans that we've heard mentioned? It's very difficult to say. I mean, the point is that the 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 chemical arsenals are not all sort of weapons prepared. They're not weapons ready. Many of them are sort of stored in different ways. They're fairly well dispersed across the country. Uh, If there was to be a a really catastrophic decline in security right across the country, then there would have to be some sort of intervention. All you can say at the moment is that the Americans in particular will be using every sort of reconnaissance, both drones, satellites, aircraft probably, and trying to uh, talk to defectors to build up a bigger picture but if it came to intervention then that would probably have to involve forces on the ground Uh, and that would be a huge escalation but it's something that the americans are worried about they're probably doing contingency plans and i've no doubt that the israelis are involved in this if it came to the worst and there was any kind of foreign western israeli intervention in syria people might say it's very justified to make the weapons safe but the effect across the Middle East it would be one more example of what they would call crudely the crusader Zionist forces intervening in Arab country so it's a very difficult situation Christopher is this rhetoric from the United States or is there actually some foundation to what they're threatening well the foundation is there is that they've got the capability of making a threat because of the authority of the United States backed up by the United Kingdom and uh, the United Kingdom has been talking to the French as well. And they've got the physical ability to, in theory, do something about it. But here we go. This is the important thing to remember. If there were to be uh, an outside intervention, let's say by the United States or anybody else, uh, whatever the provocation, it would probably have to take place 
once there was a United Nations resolution to give it permission to do so. We saw this, in, for example, in Libya uh, with Resolution 1973. That is unlikely to get through the Security Council. So that is, is, is the safeguard for the Syrians to some extent. It's also the safeguard for the Americans to a great extent. Don't forget where... We're now into the fall in America, and we go to the polls in November for the for the American elections. That all has to be taken into consideration. But go back to I mean what Paul was saying that the, uh, the chemical stockpiles, according to the CIA, about the fourth in the world. Uh, they're not all ready. Uh, they are category uh, three. Some of those uh, uh, chemicals. Um, they've got uh, sarin, uh, VX. A mustard gas. They're all, as far as one can make out, in so-called binary systems. You know, one side of the warhead, you've got one chemical, on another side you've got another one. You've got a diaphragm in the middle, you set off a de- detonator, the diaphragm goes, you get a toxic mix. It's that sort of complex, the whole thing. So battalions, but not necessarily operational battalions. And Paul, do you think that President Assad would actually be ready to use them? I think it's pretty doubtful. Um, I mean, if push came to shove and the regime was really threatened with its final demise, then it is possible. Uh, but even then, it's not easy to use. In, in, in a civilian environment, these are, are rather more terror weapons. I mean, notably, Saddam Hussein used them against the Kurds, uh, Halabja, back in, what was it, March 1988. But that was very much a terror weapon against the Kurds. It's possible, but I think uh, one of the reasons for um, Obama making these threats, uh, warnings, if you like, is to warn off the Syrians from doing this. I think the greater risk is if you have real insecurity uh, and chaos in Syria, uh, whether something could happen then, and the real worry for the Americans is not so much Assad using them, but some other group getting hold of them, and that, I think, is the, the something of a nightmare, which I don't think was really thought through 18 months ago when they started to support the rebels. There's another side to this, isn't there, Paul? And that is, who in Syria would give the order... To use them, yeah, and that is you, to, if you get inside the minds of the leadership, especially the mil- military leadership, you've got not uh, President Assad, but his brother yeah. Maher, General Maher himself. He commands four division, which is the only army that actually matters in Syria. If he got the orders to use them, he may, but it's only a may. Yes, no, I would very much agree with that. Paul, internationally, is it perhaps more important what Russia and China say in these circumstances than America, then? It is, in a way. I mean, if you're looking at the picture overall, the the real problem is this is not just a rebellion against a very repressive regime. It's much wider than that. It has all the features of a double proxy war, because supporting the rebels very strongly, wanting a set out and really wanting a, a, a fairly Islamist-type regime in, is Saudi Arabia. Uh, to a lesser extent, on the Islamist side, the Americans. But on the other side, against the Saudis, you have the Iranians, who are very keen to keep the regime in in track and at the same time there is a support from the russians and to a lesser extent the chinese so you've got an immediate proxy war between saudi arabia and iran a wider proxy competition between the united states and russia uh, so it's not an internal syrian war <coughs> at all now and hasn't been for quite a few months which makes it much more difficult to bring any kind of peace the one bit of good news in my view is that you've got this extremely experienced and capable UN diplomat, Lachta Brahimi who's taken over from Kofi Annan he has an extraordinary job to do but he's one of the very few people in the international diplomatic system uh, who might be able to work something if other forces come together 
Christopher, if we widen this, we mentioned Iran there. We talk about the Iran-Israel situation. We've heard reports, obviously, that gas mask distribution has stepped up. There have been centres set up around Israel. That's obviously quite powerful imagery, quite powerful behaviour going on. How realistic is there that Israel may take some action against Iran? Israel always keeps up the pressure. And he's keeping up the pressure, particularly at the moment when Iran is in, in, in a very difficult position over Syria. Syria is, is Iran's only ally left in the Middle East. Um, the uh, Israelis are going around briefing people at the moment. And they're going to the extent of saying, look, we could lose 500 people. It wouldn't just happen overnight. And they're going through in great detail in these briefings. I was at one the other day. In great detail, these briefings, um, on how it would happen. You first knock out the command and control communications. You then do the target acquisition uh, radars. You then look at other centers. You then try and uh, uh, do sort of uh, knock out any air retaliation. Um, and then... Having done that, you send in battle uh, assessment, damage assessment. Then, about three days later, you might be in a position to go, go in and do some bombing. Uh, if you're going to do some bombing, say the Israelis, uh, we can't do it all because we need air-to-air refueling. Where do you get air-to-air refueling? The Americans, so bring in the Americans, etc. This is putting enormous pressure, you know, on, on President Obama, who's expected to answer all this. And they say, if we went into a, any operation like this, it's not just a week could be a month, could be two months, the whole thing goes on. Because the Iranians who, who launched and demonstrated a launch of a new missile this week uh, are saying, listen, don't think you could get away with this. First thing we would do is probably set fire to the Gulf. That's your fuel, right, for the, for the whole world. The United Kingdom, nine days fuel supplies it's got. United Kingdom say, look, can't we cool this whole thing down? That's the size of the problem. It's not just a PR campaign by the Israelis. And, Paul, just to finish off, this kind of rhetoric that goes on, an important point raised by Christopher, really, is when we're so close to a US election, do we actually expect that there is much foundation other than, as I mentioned, the rhetoric behind what President Obama said this week? It's difficult to say, but there is a particular worry on the Israeli side, and that is that Barack Obama gets re-elected in November, because then he has a couple of years in his second term in which he can really push things on in terms of demanding some sort of Israeli-Palestinian negotiating phase, and also trying to get some way out of the Iranian dilemma without actually resorting to war. So in some respects, the Israelis are actually worried... If uh, Mitt Romney gets in, then they're much less worried. But they have this kind of, to put it very crudely, a kind of window of options which are available now. So while I think on balance the risk of war isn't high, it is certainly rising. It's certainly worse than it was four or five months ago. One other thing to add, which has surprised many people, is that the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon is travelling to Tehran next week for a major summit meeting of the non-aligned group. The Americans and the Israelis are very annoyed about this, but the other side of the coin is Moon may be using it as an opportunity uh, to gauge whether there can be any kind of opening up by the Iranians. So one looks for straws in the wind and hopeful straws, and maybe there's one there. Professor Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Still to come this week, how well are injured personnel cared for by the NHS? He's won... In, in a home that hasn't had experience of other military people. PFBS Sip 
Now, as we've been hearing, there's increasing speculation that US military involvement in the Middle East could be stepped up either in Syria or in support of any campaign waged by Israel over Iran. One of the key assets, as we heard mentioned, are drones or unmanned aircraft. The use of these aircraft has been hugely successful in Iraq and Afghanistan. However, many people are opposed to their use. Earlier, I spoke to Chris Cole, who runs a blog called Drones Wars UK. He campaigns against the use of drones in warfare, as well as calling for more transparency about their use. Our primary concern is that the use of drones is lowering the political cost of military intervention and making military intervention across the world much more likely. We've seen this in in 2011, where the US uh, intervened in six separate conflicts, uh, countries, uh, pretty much at the same time, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Pakistan and Somalia, in Yemen and Libya. And many military commentators would say that it's uh, very unlikely for for anyone to be engaged in so many conflicts simultaneously without using unmanned systems. And this year as well, we've also seen probable drone uh, strikes in Mali and the Philippines. Again, these aren't confirmed, but it does seem that the uh, unmanned systems, because they're not risking uh, soldiers' lives, because there are no boots on the ground, it's making military intervention much more likely. And that's a real concern. And is it any different, therefore, to any other aerial campaign in that manner? Well, I I think so. I think we can see, certainly in Pakistan at the moment, that um, where there have been hundreds uh, of drone strikes, that it's very difficult to imagine that the US would be uh, using man strikes. There just does seem to be a difference in in the uh, political acceptability of using drones rather than piloted aircraft. And this, as I say, lowers the political costs to um, to governments and means that war may be much more likely in the future and we're already beginning to see this you say political cost there may be some arguments to say the actual cost is less as well well there, there is a uh, varying uh, degrees of evidence on that some people are saying that the actual um, financial cost of drones the initial outlay is very low compared to uh, piloted aircraft but the the cost of maintaining um, the uh, communications and intelligence and analysis, new data is showing that that's very high. So the actual financial cost, the, the, the argument is still ongoing about what's cheaper. Do you have a problem when they're used purely for surveillance? I, I, think, I think there are can be good uses of, of drones. I don't think that they are inherently a bad thing. Uh, some people compare them to, to cluster munitions and landmines. I don't think we're talking about the same thing here. After all, drones can be used for search and rescue uh, and other types of work. Uh, there are concerns about the domestic use of, of drones for surveillance and, and security, but those are separate arguments. That's Chris Cole from the Drones Wars UK blog. Well, we're joined now by Andrew Brooks, a former RAF pilot who's now director of the Air League. Andrew, welcome to the programme. First of all, do you share any of the concerns raised by Chris there? Well, yeah, up to a point, but you have to look at it as to what this is all about. This is all about one thing, and that is 9-11. And the Americans, rightly or wrongly, perceived 9-11 to be the most catastrophic thing that happened to them since the Civil War. And they're, they're, they're committed to it not happening again. 
Um, so in their defence, you're perfectly entitled to defend yourself against what you perceive to be a, 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 an existential threat to your survival. And rightly or wrongly, drones are perceived to be a ready way of decapitating the hierarchy of the force that's opposed to you. So if you don't want drones uh, and you have to accept the Americans have the right to defend themselves, is it better to have a fast aeroplane that perhaps is um, not as discriminate whereas a drone can sit there for maybe 15 hours, pretty well make sure as anybody can that it's hitting the right target and then take it out perhaps with a far greater deal of precision than an F-16. But as I touched on with Chris there, is it any more of a problem, you know, in terms of developing technology to use drones than it might have been years ago, years ago with other technological developments? Well, I mean, the technology, the sensor is the same. Whatever sensor you want, whether it's in a drone or it's in a, a, a big AWACS or it's in a small jet, the sensor is what you want first to find the bad guy and then to pinpoint him discriminately. And then you have the weapon to do it and, and, and take him or her out. All those are the same on the, on a manned airplane, an unmanned airplane. The question some people have is the perception that somehow this isn't a manned airplane, this is somehow a a brave new world too far and that these machines are going around killing people autonomously. They're not. They're as manned in the sense of somebody's controlling them, just as I was when I was flying my aeroplane. It just so happens he might be sitting in an armchair in Las Vegas or in Waddington, Lincolnshire. Um, that's the, the dilemma one has to face. But in the Americans' defence, if they perceive they're under massive threat from another 9-11, they have to do something. And this arguably is the cheapest and most cost-effective and risk-free option that they have. Andrew, do you perceive that the UK will use them more and more? Yeah, I mean, we're buying 10 now. By about 2013, there'll be enough for round-the-clock coverage of whatever area we want to do. The signal won't go back now to Las Vegas. It'll go to Lincolnshire. Um, and we'll have an autonomous capability of our own to do whatever the Prime Minister decides he needs to do. Uh, and that is the way forward. You touched on it earlier and said, would it matter if it's a purely reconnaissance capability? Always remember that about 93% of the flights with our Reapers, etc., involve the, no weapon whatsoever. The vast majority of the time is spent watching, looking, listening, learning. And in many ways, if we're going to learn how the opposition works, if we're going to get to the hearts of the people, that is the way you should progress. Christopher, why is it that drones in particular seem to be so controversial? And do you see their use expanding? I, I actually, yes, I do see their use expanding. Um, I don't think they are that controversial unless you happen to be a sort of um, thing in a car speeding along and thinking you might be hit. That is one of the values, by the way, that sort of fear factor. The Americans at the moment, yes, expanding, the Americans at the moment are training or have uh, a desire to train. 2,600, 2,600 drone pilots. Now, that's more than they're training jointly fast jet and bomber pilots. The other thing to remember, um, and this is what really Andrew was, was saying there, but the other thing to remember, these are theatre weapons. They're not strategic weapons. I mean, we have IS, uh, ICBMs for that sort of thing. Um, so I think that suggests to me that this is technology which is there and so... People are going to use it, and the development of that technology depends on how good it is. I must remember that it was Jackie Fisher, um, who was first Sea Lord uh, before the First World War when submarines were being introduced. He said, they're sneaky. Uh, we shouldn't really be using them. And I get the same sense with the drone. It's, there is a certain group that thinks, these guys are sneaky. 
Andrew, is there also a, a sense that perhaps politicians perceive drones as le- cost less, value wise, cost less, lives wise? There is a temptation, but <clears throat> as these things get more and more sophisticated, as they have to go into areas where there's some opposition. I mean, let's face it, there's no opposition over Afghanistan in the skies. But were these to go into Syria, were these to go into Iran, then there's some serious opposition there. <clears throat> and once you start equipping them to cope with that, make them stealthy, put black boxes in, electronic warfare, etc., etc., <clears throat> the cost ratchets up, and suddenly it's almost as expensive as a manned airplane. And don't forget that the number of people to, to, to operate a Reaper squadron is about 180. That's the same as a fast jet squadron. So there's no real saving to be made, and the great worry is that by the time you've made an unmanned airplane that's as capable as a manned, well, you might as well have kept the man in the cockpit because actually the brain there is what you really want on the spot to basically say, I can see what's going on. I haven't suddenly lost command and control of this from 8,000 miles away. Andrew Brooks, Director of the Air League, thank you very much indeed for joining us. The mother of a wounded soldier medically discharged from the army earlier this year has told BFBS she feels her son is getting lost in the NHS system. Stephen Vores suffered a serious brain injury in a mortar attack in Iraq in 2007, leaving him wheelchair-bound and unable to speak. The 25-year-old still needs 24-hour care. His mother, Jessica Chessman, claims it's a constant battle to get what he needs. As we've got further away from the military, so... The quality of the care has deteriorated and the opportunity to access the, the needs that he has, like the, some of the medicines, Botox, for example, to help with his spasms, that becomes a bit of an issue. You've got to keep following it up because he needs it. Somebody's got to sign a paper somewhere. Somebody's got to agree the cost. It seems, in, albeit in a different way, just as much as a battle now to maintain the quality of care and to, for Stephen to continue to make progress, albeit small progress and over a longer time, as it was when he first came, first arrived back in the UK and really looked horrible. Now, the Department of Health has said the care of the seriously injured is a key priority for the NHS as part of its support to the armed forces. The statement added that concerns about the issues faced by Mr Vores in particular will be brought to the attention of NHS Midlands and East Armed Forces Network so they can ensure he continues to receive the best possible NHS care. The Department of Health also says there are provisions to prioritise care for veterans and extra assistance available for people who have concerns about mental health issues. Sue Freeth is Director of Operations at the Royal British Legion and joins us now. Thank you for joining us, Sue. Away from this specific case that we heard about there, is it a concern that the further you move into the NHS system, there are more care issues? effort by both the Ministry of Defence and particularly by the Department of Health and the new uh, the new structures are coming into the NHS that that actually this is well planned for and understood but it is it is complicated and funding is a big issue in the NHS for specialist treatment so uh, I think it's something we've just got to keep watching out and as the de- Department of Health has said I think the armed forces networks and there are there are ten of those around the country specifically there to help individuals who are having difficulties is getting that care to, with us on an advocacy basis to make sure they do get the priority that they're entitled to, where they're entitled to it. The question, I guess, is that priority. How long does that go on? Because there has to be a line drawn at some point, I guess. 
Well, th there has been a commit. There is a commitment by the government that people who've got a service-related injury, uh, and indeed it, it's built into the Armed Forces Compensation Scheme, that they will be able to rely on treatment for the rest of their lives for service-related service injuries. But the NHS Charter, uh, you know, does have its own protocol, you know, which is about you know priority for for people on a clinical basis, and so. I think, uh, yeah, as someone's service becomes less and less, people can become less and less aware of that, there are dangers that uh, this could be, be something that people forget about. So this is where the Armed Forces Networks that are fairly newly created are going to, uh, have been very important and we really hope they're going to continue to be uh, active in the future as the, tr as the NHS starts to transform into these new commissioning bodies. When we're hearing Jessica talk there, it's a really, you know, very difficult case, specifically that one. But, you know, the problems she describes are probably what a lot of people, you know, in society experience with the NHS as, as standard. So there might be some people to argue, well, this is the kind of postcode lottery, if you call it that, that we have to deal with. So are veterans any, you know, should they be treated more specially? Well, I think the, 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 this is actually a very important point because the Armed Forces Compensation Scheme uh, that individuals who've been uh, injured since 2005 are able to access, uh, they uh, are entitled to that treatment as part of their package of compensation for their service-related injury. So the NHS has got a duty and an obligation to provide that care and support throughout their lives um, because... If you were injured in any other way, if you were, uh, had a civil compensation claim, then you would probably be paid for the continuing care uh, for your particular treatment throughout your life. People who are serving the armed forces have to rely on the NHS and therefore they, the NHS has to stand up and deliver for as long as is necessary. And you're keeping an eye on whether you think enough is being done and, and whether you know, the, the government is making sure that the covenant, as they've promised, is being promised well we're very yeah we're very actively uh, interested in doing that we're trying to help uh, the executive bodies develop a system that enables them to monitor that but we're also very keen to advocate and encourage the networks to take an active role for individuals like this particular case because what jessica described was the being surrounded by people that perhaps not of the same experience but then i, I guess there is a, a an argument to say she you know should it you know experience what it is like to be around other people to to actually learn to be away from that military protection if you like of course, and, the, and I'm sure you know the longer you, the, the, the longer the period of time is between when a person leaves the services, but that that's going to be something that happens naturally. But the uh, the, the NHS and the regional NHSs will have contracts with Defence Medical Services, uh, and actually, if an individual, if a family feels they're not getting the service from the NHS and their local armed forces network can't get any improvement in that, then quite honestly, I think Defence Medical Services would be willing to make sure uh, that the local service uh, is, is actually providing what is needed for that individual and to support the fact that, that is a, they've, they've acquired that need from a service-related injury. So thank you very much indeed for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Now we've got time before we say goodbye this week, Christopher, to look back at the life of someone who I understand you, you knew fairly well, Spurgeon M. Keeney Jr., an arms control specialist who died recently in the United States and a highly influential figure. Yeah, he taught me. Um, arms control. 
Um, he was 87 when he died, and people said, oh, it's a fair innings, you know, and that's it, and it's sort of, it was just dismissed. But this man, he was the, the mastermind of American policy on arms control, and this is the Cold War, you know, with, with, with the Russians. We were talking about weapons earlier on, including CW. Um, this, the man was at the grip of it, and he starts going back to the 1950s, to President Eisenhower, he advised him. He advised Kennedy, Johnson, Carter... And this was the man who said, you've got to beware of this one thing. In arms control, um, you quite often will agree to ban those things that you don't want. You will agree to ban you th those things that you don't want the other side to have. And you will agree to ban those things which you haven't worked out the technology yet. And when you agree to ban them, it'll reflect the state of the relationship at the time, but not in the future. His main concern, that one of the last things he talked to me about was biological weapons and chemical weapons, but certainly biological weapons. And he said, there, there is the new terrorist weapon. And he said, if you don't get a grip on that, then he said, the terror of 9-11 uh, will look just like mustard seed. Not very important anymore. And do you think that there is a concern that there isn't a grip on that? I think there isn't. Uh, the, in Geneva... There's the dis UN disarmament uh, group in, dis uh, in, in Geneva. They've been working on biological weapons, I know, for the past 15 years. They still haven't got the sort of agreements from 190 countries, effectively, though, for, let's say, 15 countries, that you've not only got to ban them, you've got to ban the development of them, um, and you've got to ban the pot potential use of them. And one of the reasons they haven't got an agreement it is almost impossible to get any guarantees. And don't forget the last thing that Spurgeon uh, Keeney said was this. You can agree to ban something. Then you go home and your legislature, like the American Congress, says, ah, we don't think it's a good idea after all. So we're not going to ratify it. And you just tip these things on the waste heap. And that's why if Israel took a pot shot at Iran, it'll be a, a systematic way of banning something. Christopher, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating stuff. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Christopher Lee and to all our guests this week. If you've any views on the topics we've covered, get in touch. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. And remember, you can listen again to this week's programme at our website, bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. From me, David Spencer, thanks for listening and goodbye. 